1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Today we're talking about conflict. And by conflict, I mean disagreement and intense debate. And they are a routine and necessary part of business. Now, however, most of the people that I interact with in the corporate world either tip to one side or the other around conflict. They're either adamantly trying to avoid it at all costs, or they become overly confrontational, too willing to enter into conflict a little too direct and candid with that conflict. And in my opinion, our inability to get this balance on one side or the other kind of about right means that execution suffers. So when people don't say what they think, then teams don't process conflict well. And I find that it's virtually then impossible to get genuine commitment and undermining results as a result. So accountability doesn't stick and yet another good idea is going to fail to deliver. So among my clients, I see no corporate cultures that are good with conflict. Some of them, may complain with that, but I don't see any broad cultures that are good with conflict. I see a few pockets of excellence, but not a broad culture as a whole. And I also happen to personally believe that navigating conflict is one of the biggest underdeveloped leadership skills that we all need to invest in. So we're going to talk today about how to think about conflict and what to do when you're faced with it. So my guest is Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler. She's a leading expert in this area and in organizational psychology, and she's the founder and CEO of Alignment Strategies Group. She's also the author of Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. So the principles we're going to talk about work just as well in the other aspects of your life. We're staying focused on work, though, just for the record. Jennifer, by the way, counsels CEOs and their teams on how to achieve optimal organizational health and growth, specializing in innovative technology, healthcare, financial, and professional services companies. And she's served clients that include IBM, Intel, Novartis, Roche, Barclays, GE Capital, Moody's, Alexis, Nexus, Navigant, KBMG, and I've deleted about half of them in the listing of that. She's also worked in the public sector in organizations like um, Oxfam and the United Nations. She has an amazing TEDx talk and she works sometimes at Harvard and Columbia University. The book again is called Optimal Outcomes and there's tons of information on her website as well as a zillion articles to go with this. Jennifer, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much, Wanda. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: I'm thrilled to have you with, with this. I, I don't think there's enough writing about this topic, I don't think there are enough people talking about it, and I think we clearly need all tactics on how to do it. But before we dive into the how, I want to talk about why this topic matters to you. What got you started on this work?
2: Well, this has been my entire career, so 20 years of consulting, training, and research. And... If you really want the truth, the truth is it began when I was a little kid and I grew up in a family of screamers and door slammers uh, and, you know, learned how to deal with conflict from a very young age as a result of that and had a great model in the form of my maternal grandmother whose name was Florence. So, you know, we would drive every Sunday from my family's apartment in the Bronx to uh, extended family's house in Connecticut uh, and it would be my brother and me in the back seat and my father driving the car and my mom up front and then my grandmother Florence would sit in between me and my brother and whenever things started to get too out of hand because you know there was just constant uh, screaming every which way in the car Grandma Florence would at some point uh, just by her mere presence really and her voice she would say "Shh, shh." and she, by her presence, would calm everyone down. And so learning from her how to be a conflict whisperer started again at a very young age, and I decided uh, really in college that this was something that I wanted to pursue, and I went to study in Jerusalem, what I think of as one of the capitals of the world of conflict, uh, sadly, but you know, was a fascinating place to go study during college. And then... Uh, immediately went to work at the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School out of college and uh, then to do my PhD in organizational psychology at Columbia and so on. So I've been in the field really my whole life. um, And the book that I've written, Optimal Outcomes, is really the culmination of many, many years of my own personal both research and also reflection and work with real leaders in, in real organizations around the world.
1: Wow. Okay, so if that doesn't make somebody want to pick up the book and read it, I think that one would, would do it. I want to come back. You said your grandmother Florence. She sits in the back of the car with your brother and you screaming and mother and father screaming or whatever else is going on, and it's just her presence. So she says, shut, shh." And it's just her presence that calms it down. You use the word conflict whisperer. Can you say a bit more in your view of what Grandma Florence was actually doing?
2: hmm I think she was really using her energy to help transform or at least bring attention to what was going on in that car. So she wasn't using words, really, you know, other than whispering, literally, Um, but she was able through how she herself was behaving, which was, first of all, not getting enticed into the fighting herself. I mean, I can't even, it kind of makes me laugh to even think. Uh, that she would have ever been one of the ones yelling, because she just wasn't at all. So not only was she not engaged in all of the conflict going on, but she was able to bring attention to what was happening, and just with a, a short voice, <laughs> you know, a short thing of sha, sha uh was able to help us see how ridiculous it was what we were doing. Right. In that case, it, it probably you know it was more along the lines of just ridiculous, right? We're four people in a car, two kids and two adults who just can't stop fighting with each other. Um, but I think that's the essence of what a conflict whisperer, in my opinion, is: is somebody who can be in the eye of the storm with other people, whether it's because you yourself are in conflict or because you're sitting with people. Other people who are in conflict, but the ability to be in that situation and it's swirling all around you, but you have a foundation and a grounding of your own that can then influence other people and break the pattern of whatever it is that's going on in that conflict situation, which is, of course, what she did
1: what she did and presumably some of that is partly respect for her but it's partly her also her ability to stay calm in the moment and not start yelling at all of you what's wrong with you and why do you have to do all of this fascinating did you ever talk with her just for the record about what she did and why Mm. she did or how she thought about it
2: i wish i had she's been gone for many years now and i wish Uh, I wish I had. She passed away when I was in college. So it was just at the start of my professionally coming along this path. So I never did. But, you know, know, I had never thought about what she did as breaking the pattern of what we were in. But that is exactly what she did. It was really, you know, we're in a very clear pattern. It was the same car ride every Sunday. It was the same. You know, we might have been fighting about different things, but it was the same people yelling at each other in the same way um, and then her intervention was actually just you know <laughs> it was always to break that pattern of, okay. of how we were yelling it. at each other
1: I love that um, and I also find that for an awful lot of people that I talk to, their approach to conflict goes back to what did or did not happen in their family of heritage. But let's yeah. get out of the family dynamics and get into the work dynamics. So you talk about, your book is titled Optimal Outcomes, and your focus is on op- optimal outcomes. So what do you mean by that, and how does that relate to this whole topic of conflict?
2: What I mean by an optimal outcome is really two things. Number one is it's optimal if it takes into account what we most deeply wish would be true about the situation that we're in. So so often in conflict, we're so focused on what has gone wrong, who's to blame, why we're stuck in this predicament, that we don't take an opportunity to look up and ask ourselves what we really do want. So that's number one is to use our imagination. I mean, the other thing I'll say, too, is that if we do ask ourselves what we want, we're typically using our rational thinking brain. And by the way, we've been taught to do that for many years by some of the masters in the field who are colleagues of mine. And and by me, you know, this is what I've done for for many years is advised people, well, you know, what are your interests and what are other people's interests and how can you meet all of those interests at the same time and come up with options and offer other people options. This is all using our rational thinking brain. But what I'm suggesting is part of an optimal outcome is thinking to put our, our thinking aside for a moment and use our imagination instead. Use our five senses and use our emotions to imagine what a different better future would look like in the situation. So that's number one. But, of course, you you or anyone listening to me, would the first question you're going to ask me is, but what if the other side or what if other people don't want what you want? So then, of course, what has to be part of an optimal outcome is taking into account the reality of the people you're working with, taking into account the reality of the situation you're facing. So if, if you have an out, if you have an outcome that only takes into account the reality of the situation you're facing, but doesn't involve you imagining what it is that you would actually like to achieve, I don't consider that optimal. That's just realistic, <laughs> but sucks. <laughs> that's, okay. not, that's not, that's not optimal. Similarly, if we have Uh, an outcome that you've imagined and this is like the best thing you could possibly imagine, but it doesn't take into account the fact that the other person or people or group of people involved will never ever agree to what it is that is in your fantasy land, then it's just fantasy and it's not an optimal outcome at all either. So what an optimal outcome is, is one that maximizes both what you you can imagine is the best outcome in the situation and maximizes the reality of what you're up against those two together that constitutes an optimal outcome.
1: So I like that. I have my best case, my best possible imagining, hoped-for dream world, and I have a reality of what we can achieve. But it's without the imagination that we sub-optimize, compromise, I might often say, and don't reach our optimal outcome. Did I get that straight? Yeah. Okay. All right. right. So now you got to help me a little bit here. I can imagine being in conflict, and my imagining of the best possible world is way, 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 way out of line from what somebody else is going to accept or be able to do or whatever. Isn't that just setting me up for disappointment?
2: Yes, it is. So that is not an optimal outcome. That's exactly what I was talking about before. If you are, and and chapter eight of the book is all about helping people rationally think through what is a fantasy of mine versus what is feasible. Because if I'm off in fantasy land, either fantasizing about walking away when walking away would have so many costs. Associated with it, mm-hmm. that I see it actually as unfeasible. So I might be, you know, for example, I once was coaching a client of mine who was really in a very difficult predicament, and the story is in the book. She was in a very difficult situation at work. She was one of the co-founders of a, an organization, and she was in deep conflict with the CEO of the organization, um, and also one of their other colleagues. And so one day she and I were having a call. I was coaching her. And she started out of the blue talking to me about one, about another, about an alternative walk away uh, option that she had, a walk away alternative that she had. And so she was going on and on and on about how she could go work with this other CEO of another company, another part of town. And I said to her, Great, well, that sounds like a, a, a great possibility here. so you know, why haven't you done that? And she said, oh, well, he and I have talked about this for so many years and every time we talk about it, this other CEO and I at this other firm, every time we talk about it, we realize it just doesn't make any sense. I'm not a good fit for that organization. So it was at <laughs> that point, and this is a smart entrepreneurial, you know, this is a brilliant woman that I'm talking to. Right. And I, I, I kind of... <laughs> I stopped and I said, so you're telling me you, we've just, you know, spent the, I don't know if I exactly said this to her in the moment, but you know, you can imagine what's going through my mind. I'm I'm thinking I've just now spent 15 minutes listening to this per- or more listening to her go on and on about how wonderful this other person would be. And then when I asked her, why haven't you done it? The answer is because it's not possible. It's a fantasy. So she's living in fantasy land. And, and the reason why we, we, there are a number of reasons why many of us live in that fantasy world. One of them is because it makes us feel better, right? When we're stuck in conflict as she was with her CEO. It's often so uncomfortable. We don't want to stay, to be there. So we disassociate and we go fantasize about something else. Even if that thing we're fantasizing about walking away to is absolutely either not possible or would have so many costs associated with it that it's it's not going to happen or we wouldn't want it to happen. So that's one way that we fantasize. Another way that we fantasize is more along the lines of what you were talking about, which is we're not fantasizing about walking away, but we're fantasizing about working something out, collaborating with this other party or this other person or this other team or group. And that also is just not, either it's not feasible or um, there are so many costs associated with trying to get that person or people to agree with us, it's just not going to happen. More likely, it's just it's just not feasible. They're not interested. So fantasizing in either one of those two scenarios, uh, we do it because it helps take away the utter pain and sting of where we are, which is stuck in conflict. But uh, it doesn't actually get us unstuck, right? Right. All it does is keeps us stuck while we're fantasizing about something that's never, ever going to happen. So I absolutely do not advise staying stuck in fantasy land. And again, chapter eight is all about how to assess what the cost would be if I walked away, what the costs are of staying stuck where I am today, what my ideal future is, and how feasible that really is given the reality
1: I'm facing. Right. Great. All right. So chapter eight, how do you assess where I am, whether how much in fantasy land I am or not, and Mm -hmm. the steps of walking through and what to do about that. So then let's come back. So let's not go to fantasy land. That's not the ultimate outcome. But I am trying to look for an optimal outcome, which means I have to imagine what I want and have a bit of a big dream about it and balance that with the reality of the situation in front of me and what can be achieved. All right. So I've done this. What's the next thing I need to do about conflict? What's my next step?
2: Mm hmm. Well, I will say we've kind of skipped over the, the things that come before this. <laughs> okay, well, let's back, with back me up. There. So maybe, we, let, yeah, if you want to backtrack. Okay. If we backtrack, even before we start thinking about what am I going to do, what I always, always, always advise is to know where are we now, right? Because if we don't know where we are now, it becomes that much harder to try to even figure out where we want to get to. And I don't want to to stay stuck in um, where we are now. So the book really has two parts to it. One is assessing and acknowledging where we are now so that we can use that as a springboard and a jumping off point to, okay, what's next? So uh, so coming back to where am I now? There are four conflict habits that I talk about in the book that I have observed over 20 years of working with people in organizations and also have done Five years worth of research that was funded by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security that's also built on 40 years of research in the conflict and negotiation space. Um, So these four conflict habits are ones that we often use in the best of intention, with the best of intentions, but that because we use them habitually, we use them regardless of how helpful they're actually being for us, they keep us stuck in conflict. So one of them is like what you talked about in the introduction to the show, we blame other people. Our good intentions might be we want to win the argument. We want to win the negotiation. Uh, we want to show other people that we're right and influence their view. But what often happens if we, if we try to win every time, no matter what the situation actually calls for, we can end up getting stuck in conflict because um, we end up losing time money other resources trying to prove blame and other people just end up feeling blamed instead so either they shut down or they attack us back neither one of which frees us from conflict it simply keeps us stuck mm-hmm. but habit number 1 is blame others second habit shut down right mm-hmm. so if someone else in the, in uh, it might if someone else is attacking you or blaming you you might be someone who habitually shuts down right? So this is like the est- extreme version of avoidance. So the good intentions that we have when we avoid conflict are, well, maybe it's not an issue that I really care about, or maybe it's not a person that I really care about. And so I'm just going to avoid the issue, and then, you know, no harm done. The problem becomes when we avoid Conflict in a habitual way, because that's really the only or the best way that we know how to deal with conflict, some situations don't call for that, and then conflict can brew and simmer and then eventually explode when we don't deal with it. So then we're stuck in conflict, and then we actually have to deal with it in some other way. Third conflict habit is that some of us blame other people habitually. Others of us blame ourselves habitually. So this can be a positive thing when we're taking responsibility for a situation, we're learning from it, but if we do this habitually, even in situations that we, we don't actually deserve to take all the blame or all the responsibility on ourselves, other people played a part in it too, this can turn into stewing in negative self-talk and we stay stuck in conflict by default while we're kind of stuck in blaming ourselves for things. Not super helpful. And finally, and this one can be somewhat counterintuitive, in this day and age, we've all been taught, or many of us have been taught, we've grown up in a society where collaboration is where it's at, right? Collaboration is touted as just the best thing since sliced bread, and we're all taught that we need to collaborate. And in fact, in many organizations today, we do need to collaborate with other people in order to get things done. The problem becomes when that muscle is the only one that we rely on when we're in conflict, it can become get to the point where um, we're, we're relentlessly trying to collaborate, and if people won't, we don't know what else to do. So we're stuck in conflict because we're trying to collaborate with someone who literally has no interest in collaborating with us. They have no interest in cooperating with us, so we're stuck. So you can see that each of these habits can be useful but when we use them habitually, they can become really warped and become limitations of ours rather than um, helpful the way that we, we wish them to be. So the first thing is just to ask ourselves, and by the way, people can go online to optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment, and there's a, a very short quiz. It takes between five and seven minutes to take, and you can diagnose which one of these conflict habits might be your primary one. You can also, of course, send it to your friends and colleagues and have them take it. And then you can have a conversation, which one is my conflict habit, which one might be yours, and what kind of pattern might we be stuck in. So there are, I've identified in the book, five conflict patterns that are the most common ones where people get stuck. So you can imagine people who who both have a conflict habit of attack or blame others can very easily get stuck in an attack, attack pattern. Mm -hmm. Or Mm -hmm. similarly, or really quite differently, people who are uh, one person has a conflict habit that is blame others, and one person has a conflict habit that is shut down, right? So that's one person kind of coming after the other, and the other person goes and hides and runs away. Mm -hmm. These are very, these are just two examples, but these are very common patterns. So once we can notice and acknowledge what our own habit is, take our best guess at what someone else's habit might be or have them assess themselves and then we can have a conversation about it and really understand what is the pattern it, that we're stuck in here then we can start to ask ourselves what is, what would be pattern breaking here what would be a pattern breaking action that i would that i could take and then the whole rest of the practices help us to do that but that's the first thing i would recommend
1: Well, okay, so just to make this clarity for everybody, just kind of a little bit of repetition, four habits, each of which are perfectly fine when not used to excess. It's when they become habitual. It's the only thing we know how to do that they start to cause damage and get us stuck in conflict. So one is what you call blame others and what I'm going to call attack, which means I'm going to win regardless. I'm going to show you I'm right. i got to win every time. Two is the shutdown. Never mind. I'm just not going to deal with it. I'm going to avoid you. I'm going to avoid the situation. I'm going to avoid talking about it. Number three is turn it inwards on myself, blame myself. What's wrong with me? And that's the negative self-talk one. And four is to try to collaborate regardless what else is going on, even if that's not what the others are wanting to do. And then out of those four, we get conflict patterns where I'm attacking and somebody else is attacking and we have a problem. And we can have I'm attacking, somebody else is shutting down. And variations, of combination. So our number one step is to understand where I am and where the other party is and then try to take a pattern-breaking action. And I want to repeat dot optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment if you want to know your own habitual habits. Had I do on a summary there, Jennifer?
2: Excellent. Nice work.
1: Okay. All right. <laughs> Great. You made that very yeah. nice and easy to follow. Okay. So I now need to turn to this whole notion of what makes for a pattern breaking action. But before we do that, I want to take a break. So with me today is Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler, and the book we're talking about is Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. And the website, again, is OptimalOutcomesBook.com slash assessment. We'll be right back, and we're going to talk about these pattern-breaking actions.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep
1: it.
2: Follow us on Twitter
1: at Voice TRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN.
0: We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices.
2: Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google.
0: Play my favorite
1: Voice America podcast on TuneIn.
0: It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now back to out of
1: the comfort zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler. The book we're talking about is Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. And Jennifer is a leading expert on conflict, having studied it, I think, her entire life. If you listen to the beginning of the show, she's also the founder and CEO of Alignment Strategies Group and works with tons of organizations for profit and for nonprofit. We've just been talking about this notion of conflict that first we have to understand where we are and I have to understand what my habitual conflict habit is that gets me stuck in conflict. And then I'm looking at the pattern of where, what my habitual pattern is and what somebody else's pattern is. And we begin to understand where we are getting stuck as a pair. And so then what we want to do is to be able to take a pattern-breaking action. So, Jennifer, what do you mean by a pattern-breaking action? And give me an example so I know what one of these look like. Sure.
2: So once we know what our own habit is and someone else's habit is, we can identify what pattern we're stuck in, which is simply the interaction between the habits. And I want to be clear that this can happen at any level uh, of analysis or of interaction. So it could be between two people, it could be between me and one other person, or it could be between me and one other group, or it could be between two groups, or it could be between multiple groups. So this is something important to keep in mind, that an entire group could be characterized as have as sharing one kind of conflict habit, uh, or an entire nation, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, at the risk of um, pigeonholing people or pigeonholing groups or nations, um, you know, We don't want to pigeonhole anybody, but it, I, I do want to point out that this can be applied at very at all different levels. So that's one thing. Um, okay.
1: Well, before you go to you, you yeah. that, let me just make a shout-out to Jim Tam, who was my guest just on the last episode, of the, or a few episodes ago, I should say. And he has this notion of cultures that are either green zone, red zone, or pink zone, and must stay with green or red. Red zone cultures would be ones that are attack, attack. And green zone cultures would be ones that are collaborate, collaborate, as an example. And pink are various ones that get stuck in various other patterns. So you can see even in other places where people are beginning to talk about the intergroup dynamics, not just the person-to-person. Okay, so back to you for an example.
2: Yeah. So before the break, I think you started talking about, well, what, would pattern breaking action look like? Yes. So, on the break, I said to you, you know, there's not one size fits all of what a pattern breaking action would be, but I can talk about how people can determine for themselves what pattern breaking action looks like. So, there's a few things. Number one is once you know or notice what pattern you're stuck in, the first thing to realize is almost doing anything else than what you've been doing will, by nature, break the pattern, right? (laughs) I mean, it's like ridiculously obvious and simple on the one hand, right? So if you're in attack, attack, not attacking the other person, by nature, stops that conflict loop. Like you've been going around and around and around and around, and if only one person doesn't do the thing that you've both been doing – You've broken the pattern. Similarly, simply stopping and pausing to notice what the pattern is or that you're stuck in conflict is by itself pattern breaking. Because, first of all, you're not doing anything. So, you're probably not engaging in that conflict habit that you've been engaging in. And by nature, then, you're breaking the pattern. And number two, pausing and observing again, somewhat counterintuitively, often breaks a pattern because it leads us to insight and nuanced ways of understanding what's going on that we simply didn't have access to before we stopped and paused and observed. Okay. So if there's nothing else that people take away from this conversation, this idea of pausing to observe what's happening being in and of itself pattern-breaking, I hope is helpful. That's the first answer, part of the answer. The second part of the answer to what constitutes pattern-breaking action is there are really a few qualities of pattern-breaking action. One is you're doing something that is simple. We don't want... In, in a situation where you're stuck in conflict, it's often because it's a complex situation. If it was simple, you probably would have figured out how to get yourself free from it a long time ago. It's probably more complex than that. So in a complex situation, we don't want you to make things more complex than they already are because then you risk possibly making things worse than they already are too. So often asking yourself, what is one simple action that I could take that would break the pattern that I'm currently in. That's one thing about what I mean by pattern breaking, that it's simple. Number two is that it's surprising. It's something different, right? It's not the same old, same old. It may be something that you don't even typically do in your day-to-day life. It's surprising. It will surprise people. Sometimes doing something so surprisingly different from what you normally do Again, by nature, kind of takes people off guard, but in a good way. And it leads them to also respond completely differently from how they've been responding in a, in a, usually in a positive, more, more constructive, helpful way. So something, action that's simple and action that is surprisingly different is what, and of course, fundamentally, that breaks the pattern. It's pattern breaking. It, it is different yeah. from, What you've been doing before. And I think the beauty of taking pattern-breaking action, once you've noticed what the pattern is that you're stuck in, is that you're not depending on anyone else in that situation. Even if you're dealing with multitudes of people, you are not depending or expecting or asking anyone else in that situation to change their behavior, to do anything differently, to speak any differently. All you are doing is taking it upon yourself to do something different to speak differently. And that is how you free yourself from conflict. And of course, inevitably, when you break that conflict loop, you're not only freeing yourself, but obviously you're you're also freeing other people as well.
1: I've seen this in action more times than I think anybody can imagine. Where you think just such a simple, small move, like acknowledging mm-hmm. something somebody said that was a good idea or a good thing mm-hmm. or a good insight, just that simple acknowledgement, especially when you're tuk- stuck in an attack, attack mode can, I've seen it make dramatic change. But it feels yeah. scary in the moment because, especially, I'll stay with this if we're tuk- stuck in attack, attack. I feel like if I let my guard down one tiny bit, then you're just going to come in for the kill. So how do we deal with those emotions in that moment?
2: Yeah. So you're bringing up something so important, which also is in Chapter 8 of the book, which is about courage. So absolutely. You know, I'm thinking about a client that I have worked with, which whose story also is, is runs throughout the entire book, um, where he would get angry and point his finger at other people and explode. He was the CEO of a large company, and this is how he would respond. And so it took a lot of uh, reflection for himself to acknowledge, look, I'm not proud. I've gotten away with this kind of behavior, but it has not served me well. Uh, it has not served my company well. That I've responded in ways where, you know, typically, basically, he would, whenever a client would call him complaining or upset, he would immediately turn around, pick up the phone, and scream at the person who he thought was responsible for the client mishap of that day. And as you can imagine, you know, this did not do very much for him building his relationship yeah. with the people uh, who, directly who he would be calling and screaming at, but also, you know, word gets around fast when the CEO is calling and screaming at people, so they, you know, other people as well would be afraid of him and not, not want to be around him. Yeah. Um, and so, in any case, you talked about how, how do we change our behavior? So, it takes a lot of courage to look ourselves look at ourselves in the mirror and to acknowledge, wow, you know, I haven't been showing up or this conflict habit that I've been doing is not one that I'm particularly proud of and that it has contributed to the dynamic or to the pattern that I'm stuck in here. But it is that courage that is necessary, right? So this this methodology is not for the faint of heart. If, <laughs> if we want other people to change so that we can become free from conflict, this is not a book for you, right? (laughs) This is a book for people who really are willing to look at themselves, ask themselves what they could do differently. And, you know, this methodology does walk you through how to do that. So, it does not assume that it's easy or that it's not going to take a lot of insight or a lot of courage in order to make these shifts. But it does, I mean, you're absolutely right. So, in this situation that I was just describing... It didn't take all that much for this guy to learn how to stop immediately picking up the phone, right? His hand would go for the receiver. He'd catch himself. He'd take a few deep breaths. He'd go walk around the block. And little by little, he learned, right? And so there is, of course, you know, this is not true every single time that he found himself uh dealing yes. with an upset client because sometimes our amygdala hijacks our brain and we are just on you know knee jerk reaction auto pilot mode um and you know we can't be expected to be perfect a hundred percent of the time necessarily but that said learning and the reason why in the book I call these practices so a practice of learning how to respond with pattern breaking action a practice of pausing between Noticing the emotion of anger rising and the action that we're going to take these are practices because the more we practice them, the better at them we get and the more effective we are and the more able we are to free ourselves from conflict. Right.
1: So come back to the general principle here. I recognize my own conflict habits, the ones that keep me stuck that I do too often. I recognize the habit or guess at the habit the other person is engaged in, or group, as the case may be. And I see now the pattern we're in, and I start to notice that pattern, and I take a pattern-breaking action, a very small, simple action that's surprising, that just changes the pattern. And I would have the courage to take a look at what it is that I'm doing and do that differently. Is that enough, or are there other things we need to be thinking about as well?
2: Yeah. One other thing that can be very, very helpful is to think ahead about the consequences of our own actions on the situation and on other people. So when you're developing, you asked earlier in the conversation about how do we develop this pattern-breaking action, um, one of the things that's helpful is to ask ourselves, if I do X, Y, Z, what might be the impact not only on me today, but also thinking longer term on me five uh, hours from now, five weeks from now, five months from now, five years from now. And not only asking what will be the impact of my own behavior on myself, but also what will be the impact of my behavior on other people that are involved in this situation. So I encourage uh, one of the other first practices in the book is all about conflict mapping and and noticing who's involved in the situation. So once we've noticed who else is involved, we might start out thinking it's just about me and you when actually there's a whole team of people involved or there's our histories and our backgrounds. So once we've put additional people on that map and we really get a clearer picture of who's involved, we can ask ourselves, what might be the impact of me taking this kind of action on other people on this map five minutes from now, five months from now, five years from now? And we start to get a much more nuanced sense of the potential ramifications of our actions. And so then once we have that sense, we can ask ourselves, well, what could I do to both possibly prevent any unintended negative consequences of my actions from happening? And also, what could I do to prepare for them if they do occur, right? Mm -hmm. So, if I'm thinking that I'm going to go have a conversation with someone and um, lower their compensation, and I think they're going to be upset at me, or give them some critical feedback, and they're going to be upset at me, what would be the impact of that conversation in the way that I'm planning on having it now, in the future, uh, short-term, medium-term, long-term, um, and what will be not only the impact on me, but what might be the impact on the other person and what might even be the impact on people who are not even going to be in the room. Mm-hmm. And so by, by, by thinking more like a, a chess master on a chessboard, board, start to, to notice things that will be either helpful to do or helpful not to do, uh, and, and you know, can be very helpful to think ahead rather than noticing right. our consequences of our actions after we've already taken them.
1: Okay. All right. So is it your belief that every conflict is resolvable?
2: Absolutely not. And that is why I wrote this book. And that is why uh-huh. this book does not have the word resolution or resolve in it, other than to say that this is not a book about conflict resolution. <laughs> um <laughs> This is a book about conflict freedom, because what we've learned over the past few decades is that the principled negotiation win-win methodology helps and works in many, many situations all around the globe, in business, in government, in dipl- diplomacy, in personal life. Uh, it really can work, and there are situations where it doesn't work. And that's why the Optimal Outcomes Method is designed for those situations where you've tried and you've tried and you've tried to work things out in a principled negotiation fashion or using collaborative methods, and they just don't work. And not only have you tried to work things out and it's not working, but there are such huge costs that you experience or you anticipate if you would walk away from that situation, right? Think about international situations or think about founders and co-founders of companies who want to leave, but it just seems so impossible to walk away from something that they've developed that's like a baby to them for so many years. We feel stuck, right? We feel so Mm -hmm. stuck. We can't seem to work it out where we are, and we also can't even imagine walking away or or think about um, parent-child relationships, right? You can't stand Mm -hmm. your mom, (laughs) but you also can't imagine disowning her forever that's or hard. you know vice versa you can't stand the way your child is treating you but you can't imagine disowning them and never talking right. to them again. So in situations like that that's where this methodology comes in. There are I absolutely do believe there are situations that are not quote unquote resolvable or at least not the way that we've been taught to approach them, but they are absolutely situations where we can free ourselves and thereby also free other people who are also involved with us, free ourselves from that conflict loop that's just going around and around and around, and we're so stuck, we can actually exit that conflict loop for good by using these practices to help us get there by breaking the pattern that we're stuck in and doing something different that will help free us from that dynamic.
1: So the notion is that even one optimal outcome might be, I recognize that this is not going to resolve, but I can stop being in this conflict loop that's stressing me and everybody else out. That could be an optimal outcome. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Love it. You know, it's interesting, Jennifer, one of the questions that I have always asked, and I love the Harvard Negotiations Project, the whole win-win. It, it's a brilliant methodology in a lot of ways, and so are a lot of the collaborative methods. Love them. But not every situation means that there is a conceivable win-win. And I've always asked people, so what do you do then? And I've never gotten an answer. I've always gotten the answer, walk away. But this is so good that there's finally another way to think about Mm -hmm. what do I want to do and how to do it. Okay, let me ask you one last question before we completely run out of time, and that has to do with the role of values. Do, Do values play a part in this whole process?
2: Yes, absolutely. So I could not talk about recurring conflict without talking about values. It is a core, central practice in the book a very deep and meaty and long chapter in the book it's kind of the central uh, literally the middle of the book and it's, the, it's one of the central pieces of the book and what I do is I talk about ideal values in contrast to shadow values ideal values are those that we those things that we care about in life that we're proud to say we care about so typically we care about love we care about spirituality, we care about adventure, or we care about um, being successful. Those are ideal values. I hold those values, and I'm proud to tell you that I hold them. In contrast, shadow values are things that I care about that I am not proud to tell other people that I care about, and I'm so not proud of them, I won't even admit them, in many cases, to my own self. So I push them down, pretend they don't exist, push them into the shadow of my being. And the problem is, they're still there, even though I'm denying that I have them or that I care about them. And they run the show and they wreak havoc on our relationships with other people. Of course, the joke is really often on us because other people can detect these shadow values that we hold that we think we're hiding from other people, but they ooze out in our behavior because we really do care about them. So other people can often actually uh, see them and not refer to them in, in ways that we might like, right? So they if someone's pointing their finger at me and saying, you're greedy or you're selfish or you're this or you're that, you're you know, you're overly competitive, um, or you know, you're brown nosing or whatever however somebody might be pointing their finger at you you can be sure there's some kind of shadow value running the show there. There's something that the person they're pointing their finger at has something that they're not proud of, that they're ashamed of, really, that is running their behavior without their conscious awareness. And so the work in in sh- about shadow values, the work is to honor, first of all, just acknowledge, what are my shadow values? People often ask me, well, like, how do you know what your shadow values are? Doesn't it take, isn't it really hard to know what your shadow values are? And the the funny part is we all already know what they are. (laughs) 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 We're just pretending that we don't. (laughs) So it literally doesn't take people very long to acknowledge what their shadow values are. You know what they are. And if you spend just a few quiet moments considering, do I care about, you know, some very common ones. Do I care about recognition? Do I care about status? Do I care about power? Do I care about financial security for my family? Um, Do I care about um, uh, success for some people? Do I care about having, you know, things like that, right? Those are very common ones. But something else to notice is that Shadow values and ideal values can differ widely from person to person. So, you know, you might have uh, an ideal value of love. But for me, love might... This is not necessarily true in my case, but for me, love might be in the shadow, right? It might be very difficult for me to express the fact that I love someone. And so, um, I'm not going to express love very easily. So, uh, there's no such thing is, you know, this is a shadow value or this is an ideal value. It just depends person to person or organization to organization, culture to culture, how you were brought up, what messages did you learn when you were young. So acknowledging what our shadow values are, and even sometimes if we can, again, not to pigeonhole other people, but to raise our empathy for other people, take a guess at what their shadow value might be. So um, in the book, I tell the story of this CEO that I was mentioning earlier who got angry very easily. He was pointing his finger at his head of sales, who he said, she's so greedy. What is wrong with her? She's so greedy. She won't give an inch on this. I need to deal with her compensation package, but she won't even talk about it with me. And she's so greedy. And I asked him, you know, why do you think, let's just take a moment and stop for a second. What might it be about Sally, about how she grew up? What might be going on for her that leads you to be calling her greedy? And when he really stopped and like let the anger cool the flames, let the anger calm down, he was able to remember that she had told him a lot about growing up in a childhood where her family didn't have a lot of money. This was not something she seemed very comfortable talking about, and that she might have a shadow value about you know financial stability, financial security. She didn't want to ever come out and say to him, look, I'm worried I won't have enough money to support myself. My, I, you know, I can't depend on, on my family. I'm a single woman. Even though I've been making good money for many years now, I, I'm still scared. And he was able to acknowledge that she might have that fear. He was able to also see this did not legitimize her behavior, which was not um, great behavior, right? She was attacking him back, and that's how they got into this mess that they were in. This did not legitimize her behavior, but it helped him understand why she might be responding the way that she was, that she cared right. about something that she just could not find the language for. So when right. he was able to acknowledge this for himself, it raised his empathy for her. And he didn't walk up to her the next day and say, hey, I understand that you have a shadow value of financial security. It not not going to go yeah. over too well. But he was able to be in conversation with her, in a quiet meeting setting, which was different from how they had been having these conversations, which had been kind of in informal ways on the street, walking home from a client lunch. So they had a sit-down conversation where he was able to say, you know, it seems like we both really care about financial stability here because I do too. And I am sorry if I haven't acknowledged that. So, you know, he did a few really good moves there of acknowledging his own part in it, apologizing for his own behavior. Um, But a piece of that absolutely was acknowledging she wasn't necessarily, quote-unquote, greedy. It was that, you know, there was something going on for her that he had not been
1: acknowledging. So, Jennifer, in, in the book, which chapter is this on the values? You have exercises in that to help people identify which chapter?
2: Yes, which chapter is it? It is practice, gosh... Um,
1: that's okay people can
2: find it or I think it's practice four
1: practice four yeah okay great yeah.
2: and if you well, go Jennifer to was, optimal outcomes oh yeah, I just want to let people know there, say, there's a whole there's a ton of resources on the website so if you go to optimal slash values you'll see a whole great. slew of things you can use to fill out and worksheets and all that to help you work through this work of the shadows value shadow values
1: All right, Jennifer, thank you. And sadly, we are out of time because I have a feeling we could keep talking about this is such a hugely important topic. My guest today, Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler, and the book is Optimal Outcomes. I think the thing I love about this show is the notion that this is a way to break out of the loop that you're in that is so stressful around conflict. It's not necessarily a resolution. It's about understanding what could conceivably be an optimal outcome of the situation that you're in. Jennifer, thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you so much, Wanda. It's been a total pleasure to be with you.
1: And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone.
0: Thank you for joining us today.